Well, our passage is coming from Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. And I have to tell you, it's a little bit daunting. When Christ our Savior, the creator, sustainer of the universe, the one who made everything that exists, says it in one line, and then I'm supposed to come up and talk for 30 minutes. <laughs> so it's a little bit daunting. But you know what? There were some, some advantages that Christ has that I don't have. Um, just a few, just in case you're wondering. Uh, being the God-man, uh, I am not... I am firmly the man, and I am learning to be his son. So we're going to unpack a few of the things that Jesus' audience would have assumed. Some things they understood that Jesus was able to just to say it one word like blessed, or one word like meek, or one word like inheritance that, that, that would carry through. So that's how I'm going to unpack this morning's one line that Jesus gave. But as I was thinking about it, we, the, the, the idea here is blessed are the meek. And I was thinking, well, what is meek? Like, I don't have a really great image of that. So I started thinking about what are some of my heroes, heroes from the past, heroes of history. One of my favorite heroes in history is King Arthur. Now, I know he's fictional, or he may be a conglomeration of several characters, um, but I just love the romance of the story that, that they dive in and they do what is right for right's sake and not even looking for reward, uh, for being manly men, of getting to wear a sword. Because <laughs> as a kid, that was just like, that would be cool. I want to wear a sword. I want to, like, carry that would be awesome. Nobody's going to mess with me. <laughs> But as, a, as an adult, you realize, you know, wearing a sword doesn't go over in our culture very well. <laughs> in our culture. But they carried themselves with authority. King Arthur came in and united an entire kingdom. He went through 12 amazing battles that he, just, he had to fight through to survive. And he had this wonderful gift of Excalibur, the sword. Excalibur was this amazing sword that was bright and beautiful, but it actually wasn't Excalibur that was the power. It's actually the scabbard that he would wear at his hip. Because the legend goes on to say, as long as he was wearing that scabbard, nothing could hurt him. He was undefeatable. You could strike him with a spear and it would bounce off. He was, he was just the man. And I was just like, oh, I want that. He united a country. He brought them from a place of corruption, from a place of hopelessness, from a place of chaos, and he brought them the idea of unity. He brought them the idea of working together in community. He brought them the idea, albeit a little bit different than what we would think of, of equality. And it's the, the romance of that. That's, that's a hero to me. That's, that's someone that's not what I, that's a strong person. It's not what I think of when I think of meek. And then there's the heroes of today. And we can put a lot of different labels on this. Uh, I think of, of a young man who climbed an apartment building outside from railing to railing to rescue a baby that was being held by its mother as the fire was billowing out behind her. And he climbs up the outside of a building like Spider-Man to rescue this child. That's a hero to me. 
I think of those people who put on a uniform day after day and serve the community around them, whether it be police, fire, ambulance, or nurses or doctors. And I think those people are putting themselves out there, some of them literally on the line to serve the community for the greater good. Those are kind of like heroes to me. Or I think of those who put on a uniform and go elsewhere and they fight on other lands to protect us. In history, that has been remarkable. And while not all wars are just wars, and I'm not advocating for war, but I think when we stand for what is right, and these men and women who have done that, they're kind of like heroes to me, and they do not translate as meek in our common understanding. But one of my heroes from the past, I wouldn't call him a hero, because he had a lot of things going on that I really didn't like, but I was really in, in, in just really in, in incredibly curious about this man was Alexander the Great. How could a 20-something-year-old conquer most of the Middle East as far as Pakistan, coming from Greece? How does a 20-year-old figure that out? How do you get people inspired to follow you? Well, one of the things that he did, which was remarkable, if you were in his army and you fell in battle, you were wounded and, or killed, you were exempt from taxes and your family was exempt from taxes for life. That would bind those people together. They would be looking out for one another. But his teacher, Alexander the Great, his teacher, the guy who taught him how to read, who taught him how to write, the guy who taught him how to calculate, to do math, taught him logic, taught him warfare, was a man named Aristotle. And Aristotle had a definition of meek that he passed on to Alexander. And I think that's part of what made Alexander so successful. This meekness was not being run down. This meekness was not weakness. It was not being timid. It was not about being a carpet for people to walk on and wipe their feet on and just you're just their... their their slave. That's not the meekness that Aristotle taught to Alexander. It's not the meekness that Jesus lived out. It's not the meekness that our passage is talking about. Our passage says this, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5, 5. If the meek. Okay, so I, I've given you some very different ideas, some imagery there. So I want to give you another imagery. This comes from a painting done in the 1800s uh, by a, a very famous uh, American painter, actually, and it's entitled Blessed Are the Meek. This is what I think our common definition of meekness would look like. Uh, she's defined here a woman. And inherent in that from the early 1800s would be the idea of gentleness, softness, and peace. You notice for the 1800s, she's very casually dressed. It kind of looks like she's ready for bed. She's got her house coat or a blanket wrapped around her. Her hair is down, which would have been a pretty scandalous thing in the early 1800s for public view. But you also look, where is she looking? She's looking down and away as if to avoid eye contact, to avoid, oh, don't look at me. But she also has a very neutral face. Her expression seems not quite blank, but definitely not challenging. It's, it's like it's, there's no question. It's just, it's, don't, as if she's hiding. 
This is our common view of meekness. As I looked it up, I looked at uh, Webster's Dictionary for a definition of meekness. And Webster says this, enduring injury with patience and without resentment. So enduring injury, taking it, and no resentment. But then they added the word mild. It was also, Webster's goes on to define meekness as deficient in spirit and courage or submissive or not violent or strong so a moderate so these three words popped out of that definition of mild submissive and moderate and that's not how I see my Lord and Savior Jesus he was not mild and submissive I think of him being outraged going into the temple and clearing the tables of tossing the money changers out of the temple and saying, you're turning my, my house into a den of thieves. This was not a mild and submissive man. <laughs> and he got away with it, not because he was a God man, but because he was right. That was not meek in my eyes. So I continued looking for another definition of meekness, and I came up with this one, as you'll see on the screen. An attribute of human behavior, righteous, humble, teachable, patient under suffering, willing to follow the gospel teachings, the attribute of a true disciple, restraining from one's own power so as to allow room for others. And the source of this amazing Christian definition was Wikipedia. <laughs> it, it, it's like I called Linda out of the office and I said, you got to see this. This is such a great... And she was just like, yeah, that doesn't fit at all what we're thinking because it was just amazing. This is God. This whole idea of being humble, of being righteous, of teachable spirit, of patient under suffering. Yes, I get those. Willingness to follow the gospel teachings. But this last line there, restraining from one's own power so as to allow room for others. I want to paint a very quick picture for you here of who Jesus was and is and will be. Picture him on the cross, beaten, tortured, suffering to gather a breath. And with one word, he could have obliterated the earth. With one word, the earth is gone. How's that for restraint? How's that for making room for others? The power in Jesus to hold back what was rightfully his own. It just is it's astounding to me. Jesus is taking these words, blessed are the meek, because he's actually pulling that directly from Psalm 37, verse 11. This would have been a very familiar passage to those who had gathered on the mountainside to listen to Jesus because that's where they are. Remember the setting. They are on a mountainside out in the edge away from the, the town of Capernaum. They're out on the edge and they've gathered on the mountain. This is important. Jesus has invited them to come with him and he has sat down to teach. The imagery here of that would not have been lost to the Jews of the time. Because they're one of their heroes from the past who exhibited leadership and meekness, as we would truly define it, was Moses. 
Moses went up on the mountain to get the law from God. And the people were told to stay away. It was dangerous to be there. And yet Moses climbed and ascended the mountain to get and receive the law. And now we see the second Moses, Jesus. This image of power, this image of a carpenter's son ascending the mountain, not to get the law, but to give the law. And he invites the people in. He invites them up onto the mountain. There's thousands. They've gathered. They want to hear. They're interacting. And how do I know that he's doing this with with authority? Well, as you see in the, the remaining passages, as you look, you can see multiple headings here. In verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. He's starting to tell story. But he goes on and he says, if you have heard it said, oh, multiple times he says this, you have heard it said, but then he says, but I say to you, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He's starting something new. He's stating something that they should have known and they should have gotten. He's giving the law. He's not receiving it. He's giving. There's a shift that's happened here. This blessing has moved beyond just the, okay, I want to come, I want to sit, teach me, that's cool, nice point. And it's actually, oh, I have to do something with this? Oh, that's how I live. But when I get angry, and he addresses that. Psalm 37 is a direct connection to the promised land. Jesus is the new Moses, the chosen priesthood of people. Moses and his brother Aaron formed the the tribe of Levi. They, They were the ones who were chosen to be the bridge between the people and God, to conduct worship, to conduct the sacrifices so that they could then be forgiven of their sins. Jesus is that new Moses. He's fulfilling their intended job description. Yet the genealogies in Matthew 1, as you look just a page over, speaks of Jesus as being the son of David and the son of Abraham. So not only is he the priest, the great high priest, but he's also the great king, David. He's, He's their model. David is the one. He's the man. Like there are some things in King Arthur that I really found, but as I read and studied and found out about David, this story isn't that un... They're connected, I think maybe some patterns were stolen from the Bible here. David was the man. He was the king. He was not perfect. But man, he knew how to chase after God. He knew when he had fallen, he had to ask forgiveness and make it right. He stepped up. He's a man after God's own heart. David was king, and he was promised something. He was promised that there would be a king of his line on the throne of Israel forever. That's Jesus. He is the king. And yet there's also the son of Abraham, the one who started, who took out his son, Isaac, the initial promise of being the chosen people, specifically and specially pulled out from the crowd and saying, you're going to be my people. And it was at that time, Abraham and his wife, and they couldn't have kids. How on earth is God going to build a nation out of one old man and his wife, and they can't have kids? And yet when they do have kids, what does God ask him to do? Take him up on the mountain. Hmm, A theme there. But then also to sacrifice him. Now, is God into human sacrifice? No. We see that over and over again. God was into testing Abram's heart. 
and when Isaac, who goes up on the mountain faithfully, goes there with Isaac. And he says, Isaac is looking around. He's, he's carrying the bundle of wood. Like, the kid knows something's up here. He says, I got the wood. We're going up to the special place. Where's the lamb? So he's already thinking something isn't quite right here. He gets up there. They build the altar. They put the wood out. And then Abraham ties up his son and places him on the altar. And you got to think Isaac is like, I don't think this is right. <laughs> Maybe an understatement. And Abram is only saying, God will be faithful. I just need to obey. I will. This is my promise. This is the promise laying in front of me. God will be faithful. And he takes the knife and he's ready and God stops him. He says, you've been faithful. And suddenly there's a ram in the bushes nearby and they sacrifice the ram. Abraham is the model of sacrifice. Jesus is the son of Abraham. Jesus is the new Abraham. He is the model of sacrifice, giving everything for others. This is the model of meekness. Completely living it out. Fully, fully devoted to the mission that the Father has given him. Not holding back anything, but to serve completely. Jesus is David's, he's king. Jesus is Abraham, the sacrifice and fulfillment of promise. Abraham, Moses, and David would all fit the bill as meek. They are all those strong leaders who put others first, who followed God. None of them were perfect, except Jesus. Matthew Henry has this definition of meek. He says, the meek are those who quietly submit themselves before God to his word, to his rod, to his directions, and, to com and comply with his designs and are gentle towards men. You notice it uses the word rod there, so that tells you kind of the age range that Matthew Henry was speaking to. But that's correction. That's not just a, oh, this way. That's a, I've got you over my lap. That's God disciplining his children because he loves them. The meek are willing to be disciplined. Now there's something else happening here. As it continues on, there's, there's a, this distance. There's 400 years. If you go turn your Bibles, if you've got them here, turn back like a page, and you come to this little page. It's in between Matthew and Malachi. What does it say on there? What is written on there? What does it say? Somebody shout it out loud. New Testament. That's a pretty succinct summary of 400 years of history. <laughs> that between the time of Malachi, one page, to the time of Matthew. 400 years has passed by of silence from God. The prophets have stopped. They have the law. They don't have any more judges. The kings, the, the, the whole kingdom has been divided. They're living in ruins. It's not right, and yet their culture has survived because God said, I will preserve a remnant. I will continue. My promise will not come back on me void. It will be fulfilled. Silence. And the people you know, they're asking the question, will God rescue them? And they know from looking at Scripture, they've studied this, that there will be a rescuer. He will send his Messiah. Who will that be? What will that look like? And suddenly they're coming up with these images like I put into your head of, of David, the king. The images of King Arthur who's going to come and he's going to fight. He's going to reunite. That's their image of this Messiah. And then here comes Jesus. Jesus. 
Nothing like that, but he's strong. He doesn't come as the conquering king. He rides into the city on a donkey as a conquering king and then is crucified as a suffering servant just like Isaiah said he would. He fulfills what prophecy had said. Isaiah said he will come. You'll not even recognize him. He's nothing special to look at. And he dies as the suffering servant, taking on our iniquities, our sins. Which then leads us to the, the last point in our passage. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the, kingdom, inherit the earth. Inheritance. What's your inheritance? Now, think, of, think that through a little bit here. Uh, if you're anything like the majority of people, uh, you will get something from mom and dad when they pass. But, you know, it may be a great gift. It may not be. And I started thinking, well, let's go to the extremes. Let's get a really interesting example of what inheritance could be. So I looked at the top three richest people on the planet. All three of them right now are American. One is Jeff Bezos, uh, Google, you recognize that. Uh, he, Alphabet, which is the new company, uh, he, ridiculously wealthy. Uh, he is like something in the order of $90 billion, 100, oh, $116 billion. Billion, that's B. You catch, this is just not rich. He will make more in the interest today than most of us will make in our lifetime. Just on interest. It's kind of obscene. And then I thought, well, number two, Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft, has done so much. He and his wife actually have a great mission that I actually, I, while well, I maybe not endorse it, I will definitely support it, uh, is, is the Jeff and Melinda Gates, or Jeff, Bill and Melinda Gates uh, Foundation, where they give billions of dollars away to improve the world around them. They actually wanted to want to wipe out HIV-AIDS in Africa. So they're giving billions of dollars a year for research. If you need a Jeep to get from here to that, you can apply and get a Jeep to go and fit that need. They, they want it real, on-the-ground support, not just disappearing into a bureaucracy. So they're very careful with how they do this. And then the third guy, so we got Mr. Bezos, Mr. Gates, and now you've got Mr. Warren Buffett, a self-made billionaire. And, and right now he is uh, at $82 billion and growing is his net worth, supposedly. I don't think he could liquidate $82 billion. I doubt $82 billion exists to actually put a pile of money that would be that much. I don't think there is that much, but that's how much he's supposed to be worth. And I started thinking about inheritance. What if one of these guys was my dad? Because <laughs> this is a question they've already asked and answered because they, you know, Warren Buffett has children who are older than me. Uh, and he has given each of them a trust fund of $2 billion. The catch is they can't spend any of it on themselves. It's a trust fund to give away and to better the world around them. Bill and Melinda Gates have said, we are going to give our children 1%. That's it. Mr. Bezos won't say. He's in the midst of a, of a very messy divorce with his wife. And they're trying to divide up the kingdom. Literally. But I think of what Mr. Buffett and Mr. Gates have decided to do is to create in their children the idea of service as their inheritance, of hard work 
as their inheritance. Now, don't get me wrong. These guys, these kids, they're all adults now, by the way, except for the Gates. Um, these kids have, were given every advantage. They went to the best schools. They, they got the best that money could buy for all of their equipment and gear and, and stuff that they may or may not need. They got the best health care that money could buy. So if they got a sniffle, Mayo Clinic shut down and Warren Buffett's kids got their what nose wiped. They had the best advantage. Now think about the network of influence that these people will be able to bring to bear for their children's education, for their children to get ideas. If you've got that network to draw on, how could you not succeed? You'd have to be pretty intentional to not do well. They've had advantages. But, you know, this whole in idea of inheritance for them, they knew really early on, you've got to work. You, gotta, you have to do something to better the world around you. You've been given a huge advantage. You need to do, use that for the betterment of those around you. Now, to the best of my knowledge, none of these people know Jesus. I don't know them personally. If God brings them into my circle of people, I will share Jesus with them. But without that guide, the best they can do is try and spend money that they can't get rid of fast enough. Inheritance. Is it about the things? Is it about more than that? For the Jews listening to this message on the mountainside, an inheritance was a deeply rooted cultural personal part of their relationship with God. It went far deeper than our idea of, well, I'm going to get such so much money, or I'm going to get that boat, or I'm going to get that cottage or house or fill in the blank. For them, it was about the culture of inheriting a family name. For them, it was about the culture of supporting the family around them. It was deeper. It was a responsibility. That was their inheritance. It may come with some money, hopefully, for them to help one another out, but that wasn't their primary. Is that our primary? They wanted relationship. When I look at my inheritance, I don't look for what my inheritance will be here. I may get something, but I'm not holding my breath. I'm not counting on it. For my inheritance in heaven? Oh, baby. Think about this. The new heavens and the new earth, the new, this new Jerusalem comes down out of the clouds and God describes it as precious stones are what the walls of the city are made of. And what is the pavement that we walk on made of? Pure gold. The most valuable thing that we have on this planet right now is gold. Because all of our money, all of our economies are based around the value of gold. And it's pavement in heaven. We walk on it. We're going to sweep it. <laughs> the most valuable thing we can come up with is what gravel. <laughs> it's, it's, so what is the value in heaven? What is our inheritance? It's relationship. I think so much more happening. It, you know, we have this promise and this provision that's coming in our inheritance. It's the promise that Jesus was talking about with these people gathered on the mountainside who were learning what it means to follow God. The kingdom of heaven is being introduced to them in its proper sense. It's that provision of how God will direct their lives and they will just so much will just fall away as not being worthwhile of our energy and time and frustration. And then we see how this connects to not just 
the now, the already of what we have, but it connects to the not yet of what Jesus liked to teach about the future, of what he hinted at. Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. A new heaven, a new earth. I just think about what that means. Jesus had fulfilled the promise of the kingdom and the king forever. The Abraham, the Moses, the David models. And now the promise to take away all the evil and death in the world because of sin, it's about to be fulfilled too. Jesus knows he's on the pathway from that mountain to announce the kingdom of God to another hill on the edge of Jerusalem that will change the destiny of creation. This hill Golgotha, place of the skull, changes history. And we see it already, but there's more coming than not yet. Our inheritance as adopted sons and daughters in God is actually eternal. It's not just about today. It's not about what we're going to get. It's about who we get. There's a place in heaven with no more sickness, with no more death, no more darkness even. As you read in chapter 21 of Revelation, it actually describes the sun is gone. We don't need it anymore. The Father is there. And he radiates and there is no more darkness. You don't need the sun anymore. And there are no more tears. This is going to be life. This is, this is not just life, but this is real and true life. That's our inheritance. So what is this based on? Where, where does this come from? Our inheritance as adopted sons and daughters of God is eternal. It is life. It's real. It's true life. So what do we do with this? Where do we go from here? Well, I have to ask you the question, are you his kid? Are you eligible for that inheritance? That's what inheritance is about. It's a connection. It's relationship. If you know Jesus as brother, heavenly, amazing Savior, you are part of the inheritance. And, and, and I used to teach, our, teach youth uh, when we'd have our, our talks about who you are in God. Um, I, I'd say to the girls particularly, I'd say, you are a princess. If you have Jesus in your heart, you are a princess in a glorious kingdom. And the guys, I'd make them stand up and, and I wouldn't have a sword because that's dangerous to give kids a sword. Like, come on. I'd say, you are a prince in a kingdom and you have a job to do. How do you get that title? It's a connection to Jesus. It's that surrendering to Jesus as our Savior. It's that opening up all of the things that we hold on to and making him our Lord. It's not just fire insurance to get us out of hell. It's not what we get. It's who we get. It's our relationship with God. It's that surrendering the sin that we always want to hang on to and that we keep going back to because we just can't resist. It's surrendering and, and accepting Jesus and what he's done to pay the price, the penalty for sin. So that the sacrifice, all of the old models aren't needed anymore. He did it once for all. It's done. And when we accept him, our sin that binds us, that puts us into slavery, that holds us in fear, that holds us in shame, that breaks relationships, is dealt with. 
We're set free. Those chains that bind us, that hold on to us, that thing that we think, well, God will never accept me because I'm just not good enough. You're right. We're not good enough. He is. We can turn to him, and he sets us free. Those chains are just gone. They're broken. We're set free based on taking Jesus into our heart and saying, I want you as my Savior. Forgive me of my sins. Set me free. I'm yours. Direct my life. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I hope you're seeing some picture there, more than just the one-liner that Jesus gave. You see some of the culture. You see some of the depth of what Jesus was doing, of what he was teaching, and how that carries forward to us. 2,000 years later, it still matters. Are we willing to stand up and be meek? And I don't mean meek by that submissive. I mean meek by withholding what we have to support the other. I want to pray with you, and I'm going to give you a heads up. I'm going to pray if someone wants to give their heart to Jesus this morning. If this is a new thing to you, or you've been fighting this because this, is, this has been ongoing, I want to give you an opportunity. If you're fighting sin in your life right now, and you know Jesus, you need to confess that and get it right with God and be free from it. So let's pray together. Wow, Jesus, you are amazing. In one line, you pack in so much. Lord, you live out the faith. You lived out meekness. You lived out power. You lived out authority. And you lived out service. You lived out love. You are now on the throne as our king. Lord, this morning, in our hearts, we may be holding back. We know we need you. We know we don't want this shame and this fear and this guilt anymore. And Lord, this morning we confess to you our sin. We lay it before you and give you praise that you love us anyway. You've forgiven us. Lord, we ask you to come into our life and we ask that you would be our king. We'd ask that you'd be the leader in our life. Help us to know what it means to gather together, to learn more about you, to take in community. God, we ask that you would forgive us our sins and bring us into the family of God. Lord, there are times where in my life I have failed you. I confess my sin before you. It, it's not hidden. It's not a secret to you. God, I pray that you would forgive me as I model this for our community here, our family here. God, I pray that you would forgive the sins that we now in our hearts put before you. We want to be right with you. Forgive us these things. Help us to be forgiving to those around us. Thank you, Lord, for your love, your care, your graciousness, for your meekness to put us first. We thank you for your forgiveness and your care. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for being the all in all, the everything. Lord, we want to lift your name up. We want to praise you this morning. We want to give you the glory for being our king, for lifting us up out of the muck and the mire of sin and shame, and Lord, giving us new life and life to the full. We look forward to that life in heaven of service and singing to you and knowing your presence. We look forward to this, God, and we praise you, and we lift your name on high, and together we say, amen.